Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Joe Para Talks With You is a small, quiet show. In fact, it might be the smallest, quietest show on television. It is also, frankly, I think my favorite show on television. The conceit is pretty straightforward. Uh, it basically couldn't be any more plain. Joe Para, who's the host, plays a version of himself. In real life, he's a stand-up comedian. In the show, he teaches middle school choir. He basically guides you through his life in the city of Marquette, Michigan. He talks about iron and breakfast. And there's one where he talks about the rat wars of Alberta, Canada. Long story. And then while he talks with you about those things, he lives his life. He visits his Nana. He teaches choir. He goes on a date with the band teacher. It is a deeply sweet show. The stakes are never life and death. There aren't any fights. And it's funny, but there are very few jokes. Anyway, I, I truly love Joe Parra Talks With You, uh, and I'm so thrilled to have him on Bullseye. Uh, the show is wrapping up its second season right now on Adult Swim. Here's a little bit of it. Uh, in the beginning of this new season, Joe grows some snap beans in his garden, only he is working on something really special. A bean arch. Here's Joe. Right now, it's a regular arch. But later this afternoon, we'll plant seedlings on either side. Over the next 65 days, we'll climb the structure, and if all goes well, meet in the middle. The snap beans will hang down so that when I walk under, I'll be able to just reach up and pick a bean. Imagine that. Not having to bend over to pick a bean, but to reach up and pick a bean. If you're tall, maybe even with your mouth. Joe Parra, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I love your show. Thanks for having me, Jesse. How did you get the idea that this thing that you are doing on your television show could be a television show? Growing the bean arch? Well, not, um, not specifically growing the bean arch, although that is, what is it, a, a synecdoche, a metonymy? What's the thing where one thing stands in for the group of things? <laughs> but um, uh, no, I mean, like, your show is really not like any other television shows. And I wonder, like, at what point you brought this to a, a, a manager or an agent or something like that, and there was like, and they were like, "Yeah, we should take this out and and pitch it to television." Um, well, it's highly based on my stand-up, and it kind of came about when I I did a an animated special for Adult Swim called Joe Para Talks You to Sleep, and it was just you know that was just the goal to talk about nice things until people actually fell asleep and maybe uh, laughed a little bit uh, along the way. And then I guess, uh, yeah, and then it kind of just grew from there. Your show's on late. Do people tell you that Joe Parra talks with you, puts them to sleep? Uh, sometimes, 
But no, actually, I've heard from a number of people that the sleep show actually works. I don't know if it's the show or just them getting themselves in the mindset to go to bed, but I really appreciate it. When uh, my dad would come to uh, uh, choir concerts or, uh, that I did in high school, he would fall asleep. And I understand he, he worked hard at the end of the day and then he, he had to come sit through a concert. But uh, my orchestra teacher, Mr. Thomas, actually said, uh, uh, you know, don't worry about it. If falling asleep is a reaction and kind of a good one. So I guess it kind of started from from to see if I could create that reaction or just an environment and a feeling where people would feel good going to bed and uh, right after the show. And I, I think that the fact that it's on late is, is great because they might have the opportunity to do so. You know, as a podcaster myself, people often tell me that they use one of my shows to, one or the other of my shows to fall asleep to. You know, they'll put it on their headphones and as they go to sleep. I, I think that that's a nice thing. All, yeah, yeah, I, no, that's very nice. A little bit, uh, yeah, I, I guess people could take it as a little, creepy that or you could take it as creepy that they want to listen to your voice last before they drift off but i don't know i guess that's a nice thing that you could give them a enough of a feeling of calm or just bore them to sleep yeah i mean it really is first of all i it hadn't even occurred to me that i could take it as creepy but now uh, in the future i will bear that in mind um but i i think it's hard for me to remember that what they mean when they say that is that the show is a safe and comfortable place for them. And if they are doing this to fall asleep, it may be that they don't feel safe and comfortable otherwise when they're falling asleep, rather than that my work is boring. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just kidding. But um, I don't know. It could, could be a lot of things. It could be, um, I don't know, just the the radio noise. or There's got to be something. I mean, they definitely put it on for a reason. Uh, they, You know, they don't listen to an, another show. But um, maybe if you're not a fan of that, you could introduce uh, uh, the 10-minute scream, where every 10 minutes during your show you just scream. And um, <laughs> so put an end to that pretty quick. <laughs> were there other shows that when you were pitching Joe Para Talks with you or even pitching your uh, Joe Para Talks You to Sleep that you talked about as as touchstones for, for what kind of thing you wanted to make? Yeah, it's a bunch of things. I mean, it's meant to be kind of an informational show at the start, and I guess each time it gets away from that. So I've been saying it's kind of like a CBS Sunday morning is done by a, a middle school choir teacher, and oftentimes he gets distracted, and also there are jokes. <laughs> but um, I, I, I think I, some of the development happened with a. A, a, a series, a web series I did called uh, Pancake Breakfast Critic, where I would go to uh, critique uh, community pancake breakfast, spaghetti dinners, and stuff. And um, I was a big fan of F uh, Fishing with John by John Lurie. And 
it was uh, inspiring in a way, and I think maybe I I I, I was in uh, certain styles type stuff made of. Uh, made its way into the Pancake Breakfast Critic and uh, from that into the show. But Fishing with John, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's so funny and kind of calming at the same time, too. I think he was trying to do something a little bit similar in terms of just having a a fishing show late at night, but then it kind of became a uh, something different every time but it also kind of captured that feeling of watching television late at night and not quite and thinking you would know what to expect or just getting ready to fall asleep while watching it but then seeing something else let's hear another clip from joe para talks with you so in this scene joe is um out to breakfast breakfast there's a lot of breakfast on the show He's out to breakfast with uh, his neighbor, Mike, who's played by Connor O'Malley, uh, who also is a writer and creative contributor to the show otherwise. And they're talking about what constitutes the perfect egg bite. And they sort of settle on one bite that includes everything that's on the breakfast plate, toast and butter and hash browns and ketchup and jam and the egg all in one munch. But it's really key that in this sunny side up egg, the yolk stay intact. So we're about to hear Mike having just assembled all the layers and Joe and the family are all watching in this diner. And uh, we will hear as he fails at getting the perfect bite. If we've done our work properly, we're gonna have a pretty good egg bite. I love you, babe. Here we go. down. Do no, you? don't let this isn't funny, okay? It is serious to him. He is trying. I need a win. <laughs> Connor O'Malley's aesthetic is, you know, you've worked with him a lot, but his aesthetic is much more intense than yours. How do you decide <laughs> how do you decide uh, when there will be a sharp joke moment like that on a show that is almost entirely you know, consistent and gentle in tone. I guess just by putting Connor in the episode is that it's good. Um, yeah, he's so funny, and yeah, we I, we have really similar interests. I, that egg bite is actually based on something that he does for real at breakfast, and I was like, why don't we just kind of put it in the script and do the step by step, and that's all there was to it, but. Yeah, it's it's a balance of the you know when to hit on really hard jokes and when to kind of resist. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Having Connor is just it's great as a writer. I think he wrote one of my favorite episodes this coming season about going to the grocery store, and he he's not even in it, but you can tell that there's some really sharp jokes and stuff I could never think of because of it, and stuff that hits. You know, uh, outside of my my comedy tone, that uh, is just very, you know, straightforward, uh, f- funny. I don't know any other way to describe it. 
So you started doing comedy uh, when you were 18 in Buffalo, which is your hometown. What were the what were the circumstances? I don't think about my um, starting out in comedy too much. Just, I just they haven't taken the time to reflect back. But it was uh, I, I thought about this the other week. It was um, uh, a stand-up comedy class at the University of Buffalo. I took it while I was just maybe, I guess it was between junior and senior year of high school. And it was taught by Alan Schweibel, who uh, was an original SNL writer. He, he wrote on a, a Gary, Gary Shandling show, and he's a, a great writer now and a lot of, has done a lot of great books. But uh, there was like me uh, and like, it was not big, less than 10 other people nothing wrong with it but there were a lot of middle-aged people like looking to you know get into comedy so at the end of the week that was my assignment to do a stand-up set and i did it and uh, i don't think it was very good but alan was very nice and um it was good to get uh, to do it there when you started doing it seriously was it in new york city Uh uh-huh yeah uh i was doing it a little bit in buffalo but um, I realized that, I mean, I, I wanted to, to do it hopefully for a living someday, and that it's not, uh, it's pretty tough in Buffalo. So I wanted to do it, and, and, and I knew I had to move. So I, I did, and yeah, it was, it was good. I met a lot of my, my closest friends through doing stand-up in New York, and it was really great. It's like, yeah, I'm glad I did. It was, it was tough to start here, but it, it was, I I'm very happy that I did. Was it a difficult decision, um, not just to move to New York, but to decide, yes, I actually do want to do this for a living? Especially being in Buffalo, where, as you said, you know, you can't do it for a living in Buffalo, or it's very difficult to do it for a living in Buffalo. Yeah. I don't, was, I don't want to be corny, but it was really kind of a dream. I knew I wanted to do it, and so when I had the opportunity I moved and I put my head down and I lived really cheap and I kind of it's going to sound weird but I said like I'm just going to focus on this and not worry about other things or or you know uh, I put aside a bunch of other stuff to just work on focus on comedy and it was so great it was like the coolest thing just to be kind of like when we're working on the show when you're able to just kind of I guess just focus on doing a good job at the the one thing that's such a treat to just focus on comedy and just think about comedy all the time. And I still do, but it's, it was, it's neat. What's something that you didn't know when you moved to New York that you learned through that discipline? I guess the, the biggest thing that, and there's a bunch of things, is just how to do comedy at the pace that I wanted to. Because I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a, a witty or quick thinking, so I've I figured out how to do it and taking it at my own pace, uh, hopefully without boring the audience. And that was kind of the, the the goal over time. That must have been a very difficult thing to learn to do on a New York stand-up stage. I mean, I'm sure you were playing uh, a lot of rooms that were relatively friendly to that, you know, there are plenty of great, um, you know, so-called alt rooms 
that you can play in New York where people are, are there to see something interesting. But there's also, you know, a huge tradition of fast-talking, slightly belligerent New York comedy. And, like, to step on stage and own the stage without matching that energy after something like that is on stage strikes me as a, as a real challenge. You know what I mean? Yeah. It makes... Uh, it is fun, and I'm kind of glad that I did start in New York for that reason. I guess some someone said earlier, it's like it might be the reason why the, the show works on Adult Swim is that there's something louder and faster coming before it that when my show come on or, you know, if I go on on stage on, on a, in New York during a show and the person before me was like, I love sex. Here's how I, here's how I like to f***. Yeah, sorry to swear. But if, and then I go and I, you know, I, I, I do a bit about uh, my favorite piece of pie. Uh, <laughs> there's a good contrast in getting to to keep that interested. I mean, sometimes the audience would be interested off the bat, but it, you know, how do I get my writing uh, to the level where I'm writing stuff that can hold the attention the entire set, not just, you know, be talking about uh, my favorite piece of pie but how do i take my pie bit to the next level and make it 10 minutes and quietly entertaining for 10 minutes and then the next guy comes on and goes yes i also love to f <laughs> excuse me i can't i'm sorry to swear on her but but then you know and then i guess it kind of worked in a nice way that they thought about the the piece of pie bit maybe i will write the actual bit when we get done with the interview what was the what was the first thing that you remember writing that really worked that you were really proud of? Um, I think it's online, but uh, and it does people in Buffalo like it for obvious reasons. But I wrote a joke about the Buffalo Bills about uh, how they 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 lose for the so that uh, families in the area can bond more. And I remember it's like a, on paper, it's like a few pages. It's a six-minute bit, and it's it ties together a lot of stuff. And it, it, I was very proud. I remember I spent a lot of time working on that on paper and then testing it on stage. And when it came together, it's kind of a bit that is hopefully funny and surprising, but also maybe makes people feel a little something. I don't know. I'm not sure about that, but it, it seems to. And, you know, it kind of leave the spaces to, in there to let people think about their own Sunday afternoons watching football or going on a drive with their family. And um, that kind of putting those things together, I think that bit in particular kind of combined the things that I'm still working on now. It's on YouTube if anybody's interested. You just search uh, Buffalo Bills joke. It is titled Buffalo Bills joke. I was about to mention that. I was I was watching it before we started talking. Oh, cool. Yeah, not so relevant this year. We're going to the Super Bowl, Jesse. Well, we'll see what the San Francisco 49ers have to say about that when they both get there. <laughs> All right. I mean, if the Bills win a playoff game, that would that would be enough. But I shouldn't say that. I should say the Buffalo Bills are going to win the Super Bowl this year. We have lots more to get into with Joe Parra. Don't go anywhere. When we come back from the break, I'll ask him how he makes the show feel so grounded and real and whether he's proud of it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of How I Built This from NPR. How do you turn an okay idea into a better one? Check out the How I Built This podcast and my live conversation with Stuart Butterfield, founder of Slack and Flickr, as he explains the art of the pivot. Listen now. I can't hear myself, myself, but I'm These are real podcast listeners, not actors. uh, Hey, thanks for coming. Here's a list of descriptors. What would you choose to describe the perfect podcast? I mean, vulgarity. Dumb. Definitely dumb. And like, uh, right here, this one, meritless. What if I told you there was a podcast that did have all of that? No. Jordan, Jesse, go. And it's free. Jordan, Jesse, go? Jordan, Jesse, go. Jordan, Jesse, go. A real podcast. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Joe Parra, is the creator and star of the adult swim show, Joe Parra Talks With You. Its second season is wrapping up right now. Let's get back into our interview. What was it like to uh, not just have dedicated your life to comedy, but to have moved to the biggest city in the United States, one of the biggest cities in the world? That sounds so sad. (laughs) I dedicated my life to comedy. (laughs) You did a great job. You're bringing a lot of joy to a lot of people's lives, Joe. No, it's it's just very funny to say, no, I... It's ridiculous, but I also think, I mean, if you got to dedicate your life to something, and I, I, you said that, not me, but I, I'll just say, if you got to dedicate your life to something, comedy is not the worst thing. Yeah, I mean, you were just talking about the value of dedicating your life to a thing and just practicing a craft, you know? Like, that's what you were, that's what, that's at least how I heard you talking about focusing on stand-up and, you know, figuring out a way to live on almost no money so that you could do it. It's that feeling of, you know, you do it once and then you see if you can do it a little better the next time. And that is, like, such a fundamentally human experience, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I may have taken it too far. I had a twin bed until I was... uh, 26, 27, it was, I don't, I guess I had such a small room, it was what fit, but it also, after the, the, the talks you to sleep came out that I was like, all right, I got to check and I'm going to buy a big boy bed. (laughs) (laughs) I just got, I don't know. I got used to it and then I don't know. Did you go double? Did you go full queen? Yep. Double. Double because then double was all those fit because I had to work out in my room and I had to fit a desk in there, and this was a twin bed and the desk, and then that was it. And then I, uh, I just kind of got rid of the desk and had a, a bed, and that was most of my room. Do you have that thing that a lot of uh, comics have where if you are not doing time on stage, if you're not getting up, then you are sort of itchy and out of sorts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's been bad. I, last season, I did a better job of getting on stage while the whole, throughout the process, but this season, I have not done a good job, and I think that I'm uh, more anxious because of it. What do you get out of doing it? Um, the, I don't know that much about meditation or anything, but I think 
uh, for those moments on stage, you have to be very present, and it's kind of a, a a focused thing, and you get the energy from it. Also, people laugh. Yeah, that part is great. Uh huh. <laughs> but I have to say, like, I I had a for two glorious months. I had a stand-up show at the Ice House in Pasadena that a friend who's a comic sort of bequeathed to me and my buddy. Uh-huh. Neither of us is a stand-up. And we had done a lot of comedy on stage of various kinds. But I have to say that by the time the second one was done, I was like, I don't think I care enough to develop the skills to entertain people who aren't there because they want to be entertained by me. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain, I, I know a guy who's a, like a cabaret performer and he, he, uh-huh. he feels the way about, he feels about busking the way that standups feel about doing stage time, which is like, yeah. he's got to get out there on the street corner. Even when he's booked in a stadium that yeah. night, he gets out on the street corner that afternoon and, and does his act Mm-hmm. Because he he loves the challenge and the thrill of convincing people who are just wandering past to pay attention. Yeah, one time I it was a couple of years in. It was kind of uh, dumb. Well, I don't know, but I got the idea. Maybe I could try and do stand up on the subway platform and make some money. So I got a. I asked two. Uh, the first time I did it by myself. The next time I asked some comedians, but. Basically, there it was late at night on the platform, and the trains would come every ten minutes. And I just kind of I had a sign that says uh, "jokes uh, complimenting ladies" and "guesses your favorite food." And I would just <laughs> kind of, if nobody approached me, I would just start telling jokes, and hopefully it would catch somebody's ear and they get a laugh, and then they turn and. It was kind of neat, and over a few hours, you know, in 10 minutes, you have to catch people's attention, and then once the crowd starts growing and laughing, uh, then then you're kind of in business, and then once you got that, it's, you, you know, then the pressure's on, and if you could deliver, you make a couple bucks, and it was kind of, it wasn't, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't do it all that often, but it was like a good learning experience and just how to make sure the jokes are super sharp, especially like, you know, quieter ones. It kind of like helped that when I was had a, a bunch of jokes at that period of time, I kind of threw them out there at that point and they, uh, I knew which ones were like very good and which ones were only medium based on how they worked, if they could keep people's attention there. And it kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it changed the way I do comedy, but it definitely helped me identify what's a, a good joke versus what's a great joke. Did it help you make the rent? Uh, mm, I think I made like 50 bucks. I mean, that's not nothing, Joe. Not quite there, but I bought, I remember the next morning I went out for breakfast and bought myself a New York Times. I read it while eating breakfast and that was like, that was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, that that totally rules. <laughs> Reading the New York Times while eating <laughs> breakfast is great. Well, it's more ethical than than stealing it from somebody's front porch. <laughs> I mean, if you could up it to two shows a night, maybe you treat yourself to a New Yorker. Yeah, 
Yeah, true. I want I want to play a scene from Joe Parra talks with you that's really lovely. It's from the second episode of this new second season. Your character on the show has a girlfriend named Sarah Connor. Um, yes, the same name as the as the woman from the Terminator. She's played by Joe Firestone, uh, who's a great New York comedian and uh, also hosts a podcast in in the podcast network that I own. And basically, the two of you work at the same school, and you're you're spending all this time trying to figure out whether to tell the people around you that you're dating. And she maybe is uncomfortable with it, and you are burdened by her discomfort. And in this scene, we hear you, Joe, tell Sarah that you got kicked out of Little League for running around the bases, uh, even though you were out in the last at-bat of the season. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds childish, but it feels so good to get that off my chest. I guess I was still embarrassed from when Coach Hasler had me turn in my cap and uniform. It takes guts for you to tell me that, and I don't fully understand it, but I can respect it. Every time we've driven by a diamond, I've held it in. Can I share something with you? Sure. I've dated men from each branch of the U.S. military, and I still keep in touch with two of them. Okay. And we're friends, but it's primarily for intelligence. Makes sense. Are there things you do or or choices you make to ground the show in humanity and reality rather than it being either abstract absurdity or abstract corniness, you know, Hallmark Channel type abstraction? Yeah, um, I guess, I mean, none of us are, well, there's some exceptions, Joe Firestone and and Joe Scott and also Connor. Maybe it's just... Maybe I'm not uh, a great actor, but also like a lot of the the people that we cast on the show aren't uh, like a lot of the kids in the choir. They're kids from the Milwaukee area that, you know, we don't want a bunch of child actors who sing perfect. We want the kids to be themselves and sound like a, a, a choir kid. When we did this new season, uh, we needed a beauty salon and... Uh, we found not only the the perfect beauty salon that kind of reminded me of the one where my own grandmother got her hair done, but the owner, Yvonne, uh, was such a a great personality, an interesting person. I mean, she spends her entire career talking to people all day long and finding out what they know and keeping them entertained while she cuts their hair. You know, who who better to cast than than that? Sometimes it it makes things uh, tougher, but I think these decisions to shoot in real places, use real people, and um, let the unpolished stuff go, it just it kind of adds up and hopefully grounds the show and a, a bunch of choices. And also uh, me and Marty Scousepo, the excellent director, don't 100% know what we're doing. So we just kind of embrace a bunch of the flaws of the show and, and instead of trying to smooth them out, include them and I hope that that's fun like Joe Firestone's not going to like this but in episode 8 of last season um, 
she walked right into a doorway and I don't know if anybody really noticed but stuff like leaving in shots where she walks into a doorway or where I uh, almost trip or something like that you just you know don't don't bother taking them out because that's what people want to see people run into doorways I think are you proud of the show uh yes we put uh, everything we have into it I know it's not like the 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 most polished show or anything else but kind of the thing that we we said going into it is you know we don't have the biggest budget or uh i mean 50 million dollars an episode but um sorry bad joke um but yeah i'm what we just tried to say is everybody on the cast and crew we, we try and care as much as we can about the show and all the decisions and the edit and every step of the way from the scripts to the edit, we just try and care more uh, uh, about the show or as much as possible because that's, you know, we're, I'm not the smartest, so we can't make it the smartest show or the, the, the even the outright funniest show because uh, uh, Danny McBride is doing that. But uh, I don't know. I think I hope that those intangible qualities kind of carry across and just that that caring and the from from everyone is just people will be able to sense it when they watch it well joe i'm glad you're proud of it because as much as i love danny mcbride and i do i think i think your show is my favorite thing on tv i love it so much and i'm really I'm, yeah for real oh thank you <laughs> absolutely for real i mean mandalorian is fun too don't get me wrong but uh, <laughs> oh no you're going hard on baby yoda now too no oh, i like no. i like i like baby yoda i like mandalorian but i like your show better hey thanks that's the honest truth and i'm i'm really grateful that you took this time to be on bullseye i i really appreciate it same thank you i hope you like the rest of the season because i i think it's pretty uh special where the, the places it goes through through the finale at the end of january well, I'm excited. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Jesse. Joe Para. If you haven't seen Joe Para Talks With You, you really should. It very sincerely gets my highest, highest recommendation. I genuinely love the show. It's like nothing else on television. Uh, you can watch both seasons at adultswim.com. There are also two specials. Joe Para Talks You to Sleep and Joe Para Helps You Find the Perfect Christmas Tree, which is right up there with uh, the Pee-wee's Playhouse Christmas special on the list of best television Christmas programming. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where the city of Los Angeles is planting some new plants, and they appear to be mostly native. So, hey... Shout out to the city of L.A. And while we're at it, shout out to the county of L.A. They do good work, too. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by the band The Go Team. Our thanks to them and to Memphis Industries, their label, for letting us use it. And one last thing. 
We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, You can find it on any of those platforms. Uh, All the interviews on this show and all of our interviews from the past few years are on YouTube if you want to go browse around our YouTube channel. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 